Hello and welcome to Let the Bird Fly. This is a session for Theology 442, History of the Reformations. And we are in the uh, Eamon Duffy book, The Stripping of the Altars, Traditional Religion in England, 1400 to 1580. And for class, we, we look at the second half of that book, which is the the Reformations that take place um, under the Tudors. And so in our last session, we looked at Henry, and now we're going to be looking at uh, Edward VI, which is not really so much Edward working as his, uh, those who are governing for him as he's, he's very young, um, and then kind of how this looks in the parish. Uh, and Duffy is, is someone who's writing with, from a revisionist perspective historically, meaning he is arguing against the traditional narrative that the, the, the vitality and vibrancy of traditional Catholicism in England had sort of waned and, and the foundations weren't that strong. And so the people just welcomed um, Protestant reform when it came or Henry's reform when it came. And he says, uh, maybe maybe that isn't isn't the case. And so he, he wants to to emphasize especially sometimes the top down structure of the fort of the, the um of of the changes that were made that it wasn't necessarily the people clamoring for them or, or always welcoming them, but they, it was top-down. Um, but he also wants to show um, the importance of practice. Um, a, reformers realizing they needed to attack practice um, to get to doctrinal foundations, um, but also the government's recognition um, that what the people see and do was very important if you wanted to work towards unity within the church, um, but also something you had to be careful about if you didn't want to foster dissension. And so El, uh, Edward's life is going to be a, a fascinating, or his reign is going to be a fascinating thing. Um, a, because it's uh, it's not a, a very long reign, and yet it's going to be packed with uh, changes and developments. Much of what will be used or done um religiously under Elizabeth is going to be shaped by things that were produced uh, during Edward's reign, um, his reign being then from uh, January of 1547 to July of 1553. And now he's born 1537. He's going to come to the, the throne at the age of nine, and then he's going to die at 15. And so here we have to remember, this is not Edward doing a lot of these things. You're going to have his uh, uncle, Edward Seymour, um, Duke of Somerset, who is going to be uh, Lord Protector, who is essentially running the government uh, on his, his behalf for much of this time um, before he'll, ha he'll have his fall. But this is where, to a certain extent, the theologians, the reformers, are going to be given more free reign than they ever could have had under Henry. Edward had had Protestant or evangelical tutors. He was um, inclined towards that view of religion. And um, specifically, where many of these reformers are going to lean theologically at this time is increasingly going to be towards the Swiss Reformation and especially towards Zurich or Zwinglianism. Under Elizabeth, uh, we can maybe speak of a more influence for Calvinism. Obviously, Mary will want to have a return to Rome. Uh, the possible window for Lutheranism was under Henry, 
But now we're going to turn probably more towards a, a Zwinglian view of things. And maybe, Mike, if I can uh, um, throw it to you somewhat early on for, for context with that. When we, um, and because we've emphasized in the last session, and I will in this one too, the importance of practice and the, re, um, the reforming of practice, when we think of traditionally reformed practice, and, and here I don't think it's that we're consciously trying to be irresponsible in our circles when we speak this way, but sometimes synodical conference Lutherans have, have had a tendency to speak of the Reformed as kind of like all the other Protestants out there. And um, that's, that's fine if in our circles that's sometimes been done. But historically speaking, that's not completely accurate. When we're talking about the Reformed, we're talking about the Swiss Reformation. Most often, um, Cal- that those churches influenced by Calvinism, so Presbyterianism, um, the Christian Reformed Church, <clears throat> but... Uh, but think Swiss Reformation. Most of the Reformed right statements of faith are going to be somewhere between Calvin and Bullinger and what, what they're trying to outline. And then increasingly maybe you know uh, towards uh, uh, Calvin with things like the Canons of Dort and stuff like that, uh, Synod of Dautrecht. But um, if, if we're thinking of, and, and here you can go Reformed in general, Calvin and, and, and Zwingli, or if you want to talk more Zwingli, you can. But we've talked a lot in the last session about the worship space and the worship books and the um, the calendar of the of the church year and what what is the general trajectory and maybe the, and I'm guessing you talk about this in your worship class because I recorded with you on denominations. What are some things that someone might expect to change about the church calendar or the church building or the liturgy or the um, decorations of the church or the music? Um, if if we see people moving in a more historically reformed direction, yeah, I mean, jump jump ahead, like you know, what, back to your original thing about using the term reform for like everybody that's not Lutheran or Roman Catholic. That's a very distinctively narrow Lutheran way to think about it, and frustrating uh, to everybody outside. Um, <clears throat> when we uh, when I think reform today, I'm thinking probably closer to John Calvin. So again, Presbyterians, um, you will see reformed churches. Think go, Western Michigan. Western yeah. Michigan. I was going to say there's a, there's a pocket in, in Western Minnesota of reformed, uh, churches as well. Influenced congregationalist and influenced Episcopalians in the Anglican church as well. And then I try to contrast that with Arminianism, which would be, there's no Arminian church out there, but that's think more of your Southern Baptists, um, the non-denominational uh, uh, churches that, that, that are all over America and really the world, which is going to be more concerned with making a decision for Jesus. And so, uh, you know, the, the very basic difference uh, for, from a classic reformed and an Arminian is a classic reform is going to believe in the total depravity of man in grace that's completely undeserved, but that there may be a, a double predestination. Some have been predestined to go to heaven. Some have been predestined to go to hell. Armenian is not going to believe in that original sin. Same concept. Um, they're going to believe that there is something in hum- humanity 
that can at least make a decision for Jesus. And so uh, you see these two different things go away. Now, to, to kind of defend those who, who white, or not whitewash, but will take a, a whole uh, group of people and just call them reformed, it's very hard within de- denominations can be a little bit Arminian, a little bit reformed. Congregations can be a little bit reformed, a little bit Arminian. I think there's some theologians that are a little bit reformed, a little bit Arminian. So it's, uh, it's hard to kind of divide that line because um, uh, it's a lot easier when you look at a church and say, that's Lutheran, that's Catholic versus uh, the, the more radical Reformation. In this time period, though, I think it's probably better to talk about it as a radical Reformation, more an Anabaptist kind of thing, rather than a Reformed, although there's some mixing there too, I'm sure. But uh, a Reformed person now in worship is going to follow a liturgy. Um, early on, they were very uh, uh, very weary of any kind of thing that looked Roman Catholic. So if you go to a Swiss, if you go to Zurich today, you're going to know where the churches are because they have a steeple and a clock. Um, but you look inside, and if you've been traveling through Europe, you're going to look and say, this church looks plain. Yeah, and the same is going to be true in the Netherlands for Reformed yeah. churches. And that will be a stronger thing than in Lutheranism. Just to drive home that point, as Mike brings up, anti-fear of anything that seems mm-hmm. Catholic still um, that's just not going to be the case. Sometimes it'll be the case in Lutheran history. You get to the American setting and, you know, um, 19th, 20th century Pretty Lutherans could so, be yeah. like, well, that's too Catholic. Mm-hmm. But that was not the case in 16th century Germany. It's going to very much be the case. If the priest wears those robes, we shouldn't wear those mm-hmm. robes. You're just not going to see that to the same extent. Right. It's it's a kind of a, you define yourself by what you're not rather than what you are. And so if you go into a church, it's, uh, you know, it's going to look not rustic, but it's going to look... Wooden pews, right? The wood stands out. Uh, very little, if any, stained glass. There's going to be a table, usually, rather than an ornate altar. There's going to be the pulpit's going to be a big t- thing, so it's going to be an emphasis of preaching over the sacrament of the altar, which makes sense because their theology is, is not the same as Roman Catholicism or Lutheranism, where Christ is actually present, although the Reformers are going to believe that it's he's, he's present in a not a symbolic way, but a spiritual way. And so, so the, but the reform is going to be a little bit different than going further. They're, they're at the same time going to be the ones that are going to be okay with somnity. They're going to be the ones that are even going to be okay with hymns eventually. And so you have the, you, uh, out of the Anglican and then eventually from Anglican uh, Methodism, they're going to have a pretty robust him him life but not very early on yeah early on this uh the psalm that you might mention metrical psalm you will be big that you'll sing the psalm set to a plain meter mm-hmm. um but you're not going to have it the ornamentation of in- instruments and stuff like that yeah. Yeah. very biblical uh biblically oriented so you know they're gonna get rid of you know the saints and praying to the saints and all that kind of stuff but they're going to at the same time they tend to be more conservative in nature. And so they are going to be, uh, in their worship are going to be very serious and, and conservative as well. And so don't think that the reformed are all of a sudden going to throw off everything and they're going to, um, 
let's say, you know, in a, in a modern way of thinking about it, uh, you know, a rock band and stuff like that, reform tend not to do, they tend to be less about, they tend to be very close to the history of Lutheranism in this way that they're like, we're not Catholic, but we're, we're kind of conservative and we don't want to do the, the wacky stuff, right. although think, some will. I think Calvin and Zwingli would be much more shocked by a Luther to walk into a church today and see a bunch of instruments, yeah, um, you know, involved in worship. And so the the reform influence in England is going to be, I think, fairly conservative when it comes to, you know, liturgical changes. Um, they're going to be much closer to to Lutheranism in that way. Um, but eventually, England is going to be the ones that are going to produce some more radicals in the English in the English speaking world. Um, you know, your, your, your fiery preachers, um, you're, uh, really, really into, uh, evangelism. Uh, and then eventually, of course, that eventually is going to move more in the American scene. But, uh, uh, let's say an attraction to that Arminian idea of conversion, right? If it's going to be about fiery preaching, uh, and doing something right now, that Arminian, influence of now make your decision, I think is going to, uh, it's going to be more popular from that point of view, certainly than a Lutheran Roman Catholic, or even what we today talk as an Anglican, uh, in an Anglican church. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I think it's, it's very helpful because a big part of what Duffy's doing, even the name of the, the book, the stripping of the altars, and there used to be just such a good little documentary that, uh, they did, I think the BBC did with Duffy. And it, um, but YouTube just has one that the quality of is just really not good. Um, I, if I can ever find it again, I'll, I'll share it with the class. But it shows a parish how it would have been ornamented prior to reform, and then kind of under Edward, the color goes away, and the, mm -hmm. um, and 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 so this is going to be probably um, the biggest time so far under English reform, so under Henry and Edward. And Edward's reign is going to be the biggest time where there's going to be somewhat drastic changes in what the people see and experience when they go to church on Sunday. And uh, something maybe that's in the background, we'll keep in mind, that the monasteries are also being dissolved during this time. Um, Henry also had some of this. Cromwell pushed for it. Um, that money is going to go into government coffers, right? So there are political reasons for some of these things, too. Uh when some of the, the things from church are uh, deemed to be inappropriate under Edward, for instance, some of the art, the decorations, the um, the uh, church furnishings, uh, these can be sold off. Well, that's income for a parish or for the regime as well. <clears throat> one one thing I think that's that's insp that's interesting about this that's that's really going to happen under Edward, and and here, Mike, if if you're not as you haven't done as much with this. Don't feel like you have to jump in. But I, something I think that students read about and they don't understand what it is, but these rudes or rude screens keep coming up. Um, and if you've ever been to an Orthodox church, maybe you've seen something similar with, what do they call it the iconostasis? Mm -hmm. Is that the, the wall? <clears throat> and um, so, for instance, St. Sava's on the south side by my house, if you ever go to, to see a service, you can see the priest through like this little door. He's back there. He's doing some stuff, and uh, but it's otherwise there's this wall. It's hard to see, 
and then the priest will come out for certain functions too. But this, there's a theological significance to that. Well, well, a rude screen was very similar, and it was it was seldom, you know, I I think a screen that you actually you, we tend to think of a screen like you'd pull it shut and mm-hmm. open it up. But what it was is, you can still see this in certain churches in America. Often it was like a wood thing where. Uh, up to like maybe waist high, it was solid, and then it was opened up. And the the effect was you could kind of see the priest was doing stuff back at the high altar. Um, but it also created a bit of a mystery about it, everything that was going on with the sacrifice of the Mass and stuff like that. And it's um, especially under Edward that there's going to be kind of this war on the rude screens. What um what do you think that, that this... Uh, for the average layperson, Mike, what having the root screen there and the impression given with the medieval mass in general, maybe, and then having that removed, what do you think would have would have struck people? Sure, I, a few preliminary things. So the architecture of 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 the churches generally up until now is going to be a cruciform or kind of a long hall. So <clears throat> you are as a a pair uh, as a as a person in the pews or standing in that in the nave they didn't always have pews you are distanced from the holy place where the holy stuff goes on think about the temple with the holy place and the most holy place and there's a screen between the holy place and the old testament temple and the and the the most holy place where the ark of the covenant is and only the high priest could go there and only once a day go into the presence of god and then of course think about that temple uh, curtain tearing in two when Christ dies, symbolizing access to God through Christ. It's Christ is now the high priest. Instead of going through the priest and then the high priest to get to God, God is the high priest and he comes to us and it's all open. So uh, some of this is just because it's, you know, it's ornate and it's beautiful and, and it's nice to have that. Think You can even think of today if you, if you go to a church that has a communion uh, rail, right? That, that, that is part that's that, that that kind of separates the holy place from the from the the not so holy place right so but if you add to that uh, a medieval doctrine uh ex opera operata that it's by the work being done the work being worked ex opera operata out of that comes what what you need to be saved not so much that you believe it but that it was done either on your behalf or that you were in the building when this thing happened, specifically Holy Communion, specifically the words of institution, the ringing of the Sanctus bells would, would indicate that it was Christ's body and blood that was actually there. Think about the Latin, you know, um, um, where we get hocus pocus, right? Hocus uh, uh, corpus meum, this is my body. Way back in the, all you hear, you don't know the language, right? You just hear hocus pocus, right? And that becomes uh, kids running around, I'm sure, this magical thing that happens. So when you have this barrier there, there is a distinction between clergy and laity, number one, right? A big deal in the Reformation. But you also have this idea that Holy Communion is something that is done rather than participated in. And and that adds to the idea that this is a sacrifice done by the priest. It's very Old Testament, right? There's a separate room. There's a sacrifice. Now, in medieval th- theology, you are added to that sacrifice. You are brought up in a non-bloody way with Jesus Christ and this non-bloody sacrifice. But 
Um, but but it was something that you didn't do. You didn't even participate, sometimes maybe only on Easter. And if you did, you only got the bread, right? There was a separation between God and, and the people. And so this symbolic root screen, uh, and by the way, the Eastern Orthodox keep that because they are there much more about the, the mystery. Yeah. You know, they, they're going to bring it out and the people are going to participate fully in it. But, but they're, they're much more mystical than, than the West. But in the Roman Catholic uh, uh, history of the, of the West, there definitely was this separation. So what's interesting about that is uh, that Lutheran architecture would try to remove that, as would Reformed. But in the Reformed, they're doing it because you downplay the sacrament. So it's just a table. It's just it's an ordinance that and we even, do. Even John Hooper, you know, it's interesting. Um, and Nicholas Ridley, John Hooper are just two names to maybe keep in mind. My doctoral dissertations on Hooper and then Flatius in Germany, but um, <clears throat> things like uh, in the mass, the fraction was into three pieces. So when they would break the hosts mm-hmm. into three, so Hooper says we should probably break it into two, <laughs> right? Just anything to emphasize the radical differentness of what's happening now. But sorry, what, what's ironic about that is that both those theologies, the person's doing something either right. as an ordinance, I'm faithful, I'm proving that I'm faithful, I'm one of the elect. I'm doing this as a as a uh, to follow God's law, and yeah, there's a you know a fellowship aspect to it. In the Roman Catholic sacrifice of the Mass, I'm literally being sacrificed with Jesus. So in Lutheran architecture, they tried to break away from that, and to lesser or greater success, let's yeah. just say. Um, what's very interesting is that in Vatican II, so you know, 400 years later. Um, the, the Catholic Church wanted to get people to participate in the Sunday service more. And so they said, we're not going to do this anymore. And these older churches that still had the high altar that was separate, they had to make a second altar, which looked like a table brought forth. Which would have looked a lot like what the Reformed were doing in England right. this time. Yeah. So it's just ironic that, that that happened. And so if you go to a church built before the 1960s, and there's plenty in America, there's going to be a high altar in the back. There's going to be a table up front and then probably some side altars as well. If it's the church is big enough, this is where that comes from. Now, ironically, this whole, just to kind of put it together, the, the Vatican II liturgy being the work of the people. That was kind of a phrase. Liturgy is the work of the people was still had the idea of that. You were offering yourself up with God. Lutherans would would say the liturgies outside of the church in vocation, right? So I'm still, I'm still a living sacrifice, not for salvation. That's done once for all. Holy communion is I get God's grace, right? It's God coming to me. So yeah, there shouldn't be any barriers there, but this is not an order ordinance that I follow. It's not uh, a sacrifice that I'm a part of rather my sacrificial worship is out in the world. Cause I'm so free from being concerned with, with making God happy at all. So the Lutherans in this way, in both the architecture and the theology of this would part ways with both the reformed and the Roman and the Roman Catholic doctrine here. So yeah, the root string, I mean that the root screens, that's a big public statement of faith. This is when, this is when you could even go so far as to say, guess it's an audio offer to have this or not. But in times of confession, you can make the argument, we got to be on the side without the root screen <laughs> rather than, uh, yeah. And the effect of this, 
um, whether or not it was always intended, is this demystified what happened on Sunday. So the root screen is removed. The altar is pushed. You're going to have this table amongst the people instead of the high altar. Mike, you mentioned side altars. Why did Protestants want to get rid of side altars? Well, side altars were often they would have a relic there. Um, although I, I don't know if that would often be more in the crypt, you know, and so they'd be there be like it's just a church basement um, where they would have altars there where they are maybe relics. You could go and you could worship this relic or whatever, or maybe there would be a host there. Uh, that was used in Holy Communion, and the Roman Catholics believe that it maintained, it was still Christ's body and blood, and you could adore it. So we talk about adoration. Uh, this is where maybe there would be a place where you could pray to Mary, all this kind of, light a candle, all of these kinds of medieval sorts of things that were problematic, right? And, and what might be, you could go to church, and if you had these side altars and the high altar, you could have multiple masses going on at yep, once. Yep, yep. And, and what are some of these masses used for that might also be problematic then? Yeah, for, for the dead or those yeah. in purgatory. Yeah, and, and, and of course, this is tied financially to, to the Reformation as well, less so in England, more so on the continent, where uh, saying masses for, on behalf of people especially for dead relatives, was lucrative for the priests in the parish and yeah. really the Roman Catholic Church. And that was resentful. That, that was something that uh, the laity rightfully resented of the church taking that money. And so this, um, notice how, how many of these things are all wrapped up together. When it comes up in this chapter and other chapters to the idea of chantries, chantries were basically things that were set up to say masses for the dead too, um, to help... Uh, limit people's time in, in purgatory. So notice how these practices um, are all tied together. And, and so what what has to be attacked in practice has doctrinal significance. And just to interrupt, I, you, you, you mentioned this and you're right to say, there's always going to be unintended consequences mm -hmm. too. When you take away the mystery of that, then it becomes very profane in, in the sense of common, secular yeah. almost, and it becomes eh kind of thing. And, and I think now, four, five, really 500 years later, almost 500 years later, we, we are waking up to uh, uh, hypermodern, postmodern, the end of modernity, and have a desire for the mystic and the, and the, and the, uh, the uh, not just the mystical, but the, something that's holy and sacred space and stuff like that. And so uh, there's always going to, there always needs to be a corrective. Uh, well, and it's interesting too, because so Matthias Flatius Illyricus, who I studied from the Lutheran side, saw in some reformed theology, what he called it, especially in its Erasmianism, called a yawning atheism, <clears throat> that this was kind of the opening of the door. Mm -hmm. And so what you see in Edward versus Mary is with Edward, you're going to have a religion that becomes overly textual, right? Scripture reading and preaching is central, and ceremonies are viewed as having very little purpose or value. Um, the Marian reaction is going to want a religion that's hyper-ceremonial and downplays the textual. And I think this is where, um, with the different Reformations, you see what will make Lutheranism unique is it's going to try to strike a balance between the textual and the ceremonial, so that the, the so that the ceremonial is tied to the text, mm -hmm. but so that we recognize, um, as as Flatius also said, 
ceremonies are 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 basically scripture for the eyes, yeah. right? Um, An emphasis on try, yeah, <laughs> not always successful. Yeah, and so um, maybe just a couple things, and then we'll get to the parish life stuff a little more. But the church calendar, uh, so there's going to be significant revisions to the church calendar. It's going to be very much simplified. The church and the dead. This was big. A funeral used to be a community event, and not just a community, the physical community there, but you were joined to the community of the dead, right? Living in the dead were one um, as you continued to pray for the dead. Um, the, the removal of images from the church, um, and then the importance of, if we can talk of it, it might be a little anachronistic to speak of it that way, but of hymnals or of what we would now think of as pew books, but the, the second book of common prayer. Maybe... Um, Jump in on any of these if you want, Mike, but just with church calendar first, we tend to think of um, our own calendar or, uh, you know, it's Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, or mm-hmm. we have 4th of July, things like that. But we tend to think of our rhythm of life largely being shaped by work, mm-hmm. right? Or school. <laughs> work or school, yeah. This was simply not the case um, at this time. In the medieval church, your life was very much uh, shaped by the rhythm of, of the church year. So uh, a feast day wasn't only a day that you commemorated a saint. It was a rest day. Mm-hmm. Um, the seasons were marked by these different church festivals or days or years. Um, and so this is a very stark. So we've already said people go into church and now it's been demystified <clears throat> and it's all been brought near to you. Um, this calendar would have been big for people too to have their and I just want to drive home how much people's lives are changing under each of these regimes if we want to speak that way but anything with the church calendar oh yeah I mean I'm sure there's a study out there and there's books been written about this I should I should research this and try to how a culture a government a whatever by the change of a calendar can have uh, either a kind of a draconian or uh, a more subtle way of changing the culture and therefore the activities. The and think ac- of even something like the French Revolution. Yeah. There's a change of the calendar. I, right. This, sorry, go ahead. It's a big deal. I mean, it's a big deal. And, and uh, we, we're kind of in a long period now where we haven't had too many uh, talks about these the calendar changes or whatever. But if you... I mean, if you lived in the in the Mid East, I, I think this would be. You know, are you going to count the Christian calendar, the the Western calendar, or are you gonna? How do you, how do you how do you count years and stuff like that? I mean, it's even to the point where there's old things like, well, you you got to get your potatoes planted by Good Friday. Well, I'm sorry, Good Friday moves. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like I mean, so there was there was there was definitely a calendar type, and, and what's unique in America is that we have overlapping calendars and it's very difficult to, and, and often the church gets pushed to the side. Oh yeah. I think, you know, today, um, you know, how many people even in the Lutheran church know what Sunday of Lent was last Sunday? Well, they, they would have known that, right. And there would have been specific days. Your day could be tied to your town, to your parish, Um, but when you would write a letter often, and yeah. you're getting at this too, you wouldn't put March 3rd of whatever. You would put what day it was in the church year. Yeah. So, you know, on, on the Monday of Lent 5 or on the, the Feast of St. Anne. Right. Or, right. And so I, I understand the impulse to get rid of those saints, which means those saints' days. 
but when you do that, it's it's a parallel thing of what we were talking about with the root screens and, and stuff like that. When you take that away, you make time separate from God's activity in time, right? And so uh, th- there's going to be ramifications that are going to happen there. You, you, you are now, instead of living always in the idea of this is God's time and God's place and, and this is a gift for me, it becomes more of, uh, you know, we do things by the by the the economic quarters, the fiscal the fiscal year or whatever. Just think about how your days have changed with the current pandemic. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you found this, Mike. I have a hard time remembering what day of the week right. it is right. because I'm not going to physical classes and showing up on. Mm-hmm. Well, think about how disorienting it would be to have that changed on a larger scale. Absolutely, and so. You may, you, you know, you, your town maybe made a big deal about a saint's day or your parish did or whatever. Now all of a sudden that's forbidden or it's not a big deal. That, that, that disrupts. St. Patrick's Day this year, you couldn't go right. out and do anything, right? Yeah, so St. Patrick's Day is kind of the ultimate example today. Like there's a lot of economics tied to St. Patrick's Day, yeah. right? And that would have been not as big back then because everything, St. Patrick's Day is its own thing. But those smallest days would have had some sort of impact culturally. And so uh, that, that does change it. Now, they're going to keep Christmas and all that kind of stuff. But there were times when they tried to push that even that stuff out. And there are people out. who call for it. Yeah, to get rid of it. Yeah. yeah. So it's, you know, we didn't bring up the word iconoclasm. I think it was probably, you know, literally the breaking of images. You know, that, that, that has has a long history in the Christian church. And certainly that happened in England. But it wasn't like... In most cases here, they're trying to say... Um, it wasn't violent. Right. Yeah. Now, sometimes it would break Could out that be, way, yeah. but officially the government is saying to the parish, you can sell these items or you can whatever. Yeah. And a lot of times what will happen too is that the, the gentry who had donated those items ends up with them, whether that happens yeah. through them being stolen or sold. Because it's amazing how many of them show back up under Mary. But yeah, this is definitely different, and I think it's important you point that out, Mike. This is not a kind of class where... Everyone's just being encouraged to go willy-nilly smash stuff. Because keep in mind, uh, Edward is a tutor, and the tutors want good order. Yeah. And it's not good order to get people. You you get people smashing stuff, and a lot more stuff might get smashed than what you plan. Right. And so, well, to the church here stuff, there is an iconoclasm of time. Yeah. Right. I mean, you can you can speak that way. And what's interesting to bring that up, that you know, England's just different than Germany. It's got. It's isolated. It's literally an island. It has a king where, you know. And people forget that because England had its its time of empire. Yeah. At this time, England is is way more isolated than, than a Germany. You know, this is not an England that is in India and whatever. Right. You, know, you can have imported whatever from wherever. Um, it's easy, and it's easy for— It's rather xenophobic at this time under the Tudors. And it's very easy for Henry to say, I don't care what the Pope says in Italy, much less so yeah. when— Come here, bro. In the, yeah, in the, con- in the continent where everything's tied together. So you can have an iconoclasm with Karl Stott and Wittenberg, which, you know, which was snuffed out because of, you know, the, the princes, but um, and largely also because of Luther, but, um, you know— you're not going to do that in England, I don't think, right? Which then also leads to they can have the, the 10 articles, the 6 articles, the 42 articles, the 39 articles. There can be a top-down thing just because they could. It's not like, you know, in Switzerland they couldn't or, or they, they didn't want to. It's just a different political system. Um, 
And then maybe, Mike, if you have anything briefly on, uh, I think the relationship between the church and the dead, and maybe I'll throw out as an illustration, and then you can hit on it if you want, or, or you don't have to bite. Uh, many Lutheran parishes also have church cemeteries. Mm-hmm. And I believe a custom in many of those churches historically had been that the Easter service might even begin in that cemetery. Um, that practice might give a bit of a feel for what was felt with this community of, of the dead and the living in the medieval church. But um, why would the, the, the de-emphasis or rejection of purgatory and therefore the restriction of funeral rites to basically, um, you know, talking about the person in the past tense and, and removing talk of purgatory, uh, why might that, um, and this is often, especially in, in Catholic authors who view the Reformation as a negative thing, they'll see it as an attack on community. Mm-hmm. And I think they're somewhat, the Refor- most Reformations were individual in a sense, right? Mm-hmm. And they individual, they were individualized society to a certain degree. Um, but what about that relationship between the church and the dead that, that um, would have been in the medieval church that isn't so much in Protestantism? Yeah, I mean, like we said, every time you have, there, there's going to be unintended consequences for everything. And uh, when you're no longer praying for the dead, paying for the dead, thinking about the dead, getting out of purgatory, they're out of sight, out of mind then, you know? And, uh, you know, and I think you lose something, right? You do. I mean, there is something about a church cemetery on on the grounds there. And especially in Holy Communion, if this is a communion with the church and the body of Christ, which is unbreakable even by death, you are communing with them. And uh, so often we throw out the baby with the bathwater, right? We're not going to have the, the, the day, you know, what's November 2nd day of the souls. No, what's the, all saints is the first, all saints so first and all then souls. I think all yeah. souls. Yeah. That's what I mean. You know, we get that, but if you throw out all saints as well, you've lost something, right? Um, yeah. We're not going to pray for the dead, not because we don't con- concerned about, about them, but because it's already been done. We don't have to, Right. So, yeah, you do lose something there. I don't know if that was what you're after, but, uh, yeah. And, and I think in connection, I know something I've heard you talk about before, too, is, you know, you the our, our view of the church becomes a little bit restricted, perhaps, too, in that I used to joke at voters' meetings um, that I was okay with voting on stuff so long as the dead get to vote, too. <laughs> and, uh, you know, they, they knew what I meant. Yeah. We sometimes... Protestantism can sometimes fall into this short-sightedness, mm-hmm. um, which I think the English Reformations could be ex- extremely prone to because your experience of the church could change month by month. Mm-hmm. And with every new person in power, you kind of held your breath and went, oh, Protestant or Catholic yeah. now, you know. Um, and uh, But I, I think that uh, there is something, too, that when Catholics point out a, a, a bit of a breakdown of community, um, because it was a restriction of what community meant. Now, all of a sudden, the cemetery was less of a prominent feature of life. Yeah, and part of this maybe is, you know, just East versus West, right? Like, I'm an individual, where in the East, I am I think of myself as part of a group. But And I, in the medieval West, it would have been more Eastern in that way. Yeah, and I, I think, I mean, you start looking at you know, our politics in America— uh, democratic, very individual conscience driven, which I think is a good thing. 
I, I think we are hyper-individualistic, which is good and bad. Um, our philosophy tends to be utilitarian, what works, right? Uh, it's very practical. Um, and you look also at, the, at a radical reformation that does put the individual above the, above the group. Think about pietism as being a curved, inward, personal, spiritual thing rather than an objective community, good, bad, and ugly, physical thing. And all of those go hand in hand, right? And they go hand in hand with rationalism, the Enlightenment, modernity. I mean, I, it's very hard to untangle this web. Yeah, and I think it's maybe a re somewhat a reaction to that among um, the church of our day that you see something like an All Saints Day coming back. Mm -hmm, absolutely. Um, you know, think of in America the, the Memorial Day and the prominence we give to that. We recognize with those who've given their lives for our country that there's a community there with mm -hmm. that person, right, that what we have and enjoy is tied to that in some way. I think the church is starting, Lutheran churches at least, to want to recapture some of that with something like an All Saints yeah, Day. Yeah, and notice this is not just true of America, but... Uh, post-World War I and World War II uh, uh, countries in Europe, especially the continent, that the, the, the secular government picks up where the, where the Protestant church largely kind of let things go. So Memorial Day, um, Veterans Day, um, the flag, nationalism. A lot of these things that are an attempts to be ties that bind together, um, a post a enlightenment fractured Protestant church. You know, some of it's just because you have so many different Protestant churches and and add in their Catholic and other religions that it's hard to have a tie that binds across these denominations. But uh, I think there's something to that. There's a lot of parallels. Uh, we when we talked worship, we did this a lot. We say. The creed is like the the Pledge of Allegiance, right? Um, there, there are things that, and what's kind of ironic is that to explain to an up-and-coming generation who understands there's something lacking mystically and soul-type things and how does the physical and the spiritual come together, that to explain these things of the church that have always been there that have been seen as either just going through the motions kind of in a Roman Catholic way or something that was just never experienced in the pro larger Protestant uh, church. To explain it to them, you have to explain it in American national terms yeah. to understand what the church was always doing well before America was even a thing. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, what the reason, and you may think, well, why am I trying to emphasize this so much, is I want to give especially a sense with Edward because this is going to be the beginning of the roller coaster, really, because then Mary comes, and then you have to wonder what's going to happen with Elizabeth, <clears throat> is how significant these changes would have been for people at this time. And so Duffy's big question, <clears throat> and that comes out in the, the impact of Reform the Parishes chapter, chapter 14, is do these changes mean that people's beliefs actually changed? Or do these changes mean that people just went with the flow because they didn't want to get in trouble? Um and uh, their beliefs, for the most part, were somewhat constant. And I think what I'm trying to unpack and what uh, I thank you for helping with, Mike, is it's really hard to say sometimes. Mm -hmm. But these would have been drastic differences. And I think something that argues against kind of Duff, Duffy's overwhelming thesis of 
or overarching thesis, I should say, of um, that there really was this kind of strong Catholicism that persists and that it um, it was basically this Tudor emphasis on conformity and uh, is a lot of people did go along, mm-hmm. right? Um, there, there's not the pushback we might have expected. Although I think Duffy does a good job of saying not everybody went along as, as much as we might think and... You can't argue that going along necessarily means everyone became Swiss in their theological mm-hmm. orientation under Edward or that everyone's now magically Catholic again under Mary. But I do think something that Duffy brings out, and I don't think it's a key argument he's making, but I think it's a good point, is that notice all of these changes basically undermine the foundations um, of church life and, and belief and practice and it comes largely through changes in practice. Mm-hmm. This is what is going to make it really hard for Mary to reinstitute Catholicism. This is what is going to make it um, so that Elizabeth can't go with a hardcore um, Calvinism in the Elizabethan settlement, is the foundations are being chipped away at. And I, I think this is something, right? Theology 442 is a, a history and theology class, so we want to have both embassies. But I think there is a lesson in there for the church as well, too. When there is too much upheaval in the church, when there isn't a certain sense of constancy in practice and in church life and in the church calendar, when people can't get um, uh, accustomed to and immersed in what happens on Sunday. This is why I'm I'm not a big fan of changing translations of stuff all the Mm -hmm. time, too, I if you get a translation of the Catechism works that works, I think that's great. I'm glad that our new hymnal, I think, is going with the same text in all of, yeah. of the service settings. Like it should be every 125 years. Right, but to max. to have constancy in the church year, for instance, that we that we mark the the days of Lent or we mark the minor festivals or the major festivals, um, that you know what the church is going to somewhat look like <clears throat> when you step in. And then when, when there are changes in colors or mm-hmm. statues are veiled, that stands out. I think one of the fascinating things about the English Reformation is how the, the lack of that constancy radically changes the nature of the English church. Um, and so I think it's no coincidence that the English church is going to really give birth to denominationalism eventually, which will flower in America. Mm-hmm. Right, it's America's English heritage Absolutely. that really this, you know, a new denomination every day will come out of. Well, part of that I think gets to the, you're not moored anymore, you're not anchored, and I don't know if that makes sense, Mike. But absolutely, and then tie into that that you know, I mean, just the the philosophy of of politics and democracy and stuff that we owe a lot to England to good, bad, and ugly. Right, uh, those things are those things are are mixed together. I think. Um, And then I'll just hit on briefly. So two things that to just keep in mind that will be very influential for the Elizabethan church, which will come after Mary, is uh, Edward's second book of common prayer is going to become, to a large part, the basis for the book of common prayer under Elizabeth. And then the 42 articles in many ways will become the basis for the 39 articles, which are still important today in the Church of England. So notice how... So the Edwardian regime isn't going to win long term, but the Edwardian regime is going to get a fair amount of wins in what the Elizabethan 
uh, regime chooses to adapt. Um, but this explains kind of the camps within Anglicanism still today that you can have people who are in good standing in the Church of, Ang- uh, of England who are more evangelical in their disposition, um, more John Wesley, right, is in the Church of England. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you can have Anglo-Catholics who would like to outpope the Pope, right? Mm-hmm. And I don't say that to make fun of them. I, th- I think if I were in the Church of England, that's probably the camp um, <clears throat> I would be in. But it will become a big tent type of church precisely because Elizabeth realizes there's been so much back and forth. There needs to be something that will be unity. And so when we get to Elizabeth, Mike, hopefully we can come back to and talk a little bit about the importance of the Book of Common Prayer again. Um, and the developments there. We're going to pick up then in the next podcast session um, with Mary. <coughs> and then I'm going to hit a little bit on the chapter on wills. Um, I just want you guys reading that because I think it shows the importance of continued historical research, not just for history, but for understanding the church too, right? The church has lived and breathed in history. And we can better understand what the church believed, why it did what it did, um, how it disseminated its messages through ongoing research. And so I think that chapter is pretty fascinating. But we will pick up the next one with Mary. Uh, In the meanwhile, let the bird fly.